Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Matt Tillard. Uh, Matt is the co-founder of Cross Boundary, which is an investment firm that focuses on renewable energy investments in developing countries and specifically in fragile and conflict state. So welcome, Matt. How's it going in Nairobi? Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a sunny day here. (laughs) Yeah, so... Matt, uh, for this podcast, uh, I did a lot of research about your background, and you have a very, very interesting background. From what I've read, you're originally from Australia, but you did your studies also in the U.S., and then you had a lot of different experiences in countries like Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, before you hopped onto this idea for cross-boundary. So can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I I grew up in Australia. I think I've always had a a desire to be involved in some way in trying to help save the world. (laughs) But growing up in Australia, the, you know, the problems that I was exposed to were, were mainly environmental. So climate change, uh, protection of habitats and conservation. When I finished high school, I, I went off to Melbourne University to do a law and an environmental science degree there. And my ambition was to be involved in helping to protect the environment, to create a, a sustainable society but pretty soon, during my gap year, actually, I, I went on a trip with my father to Vietnam. And that was the first time I'd been in a developing country context. The levels of inequality and, and poverty were, were really confronting to me. And I changed the direction of my career to not just be interested in sustainability, which I still am, but also interested in development. How can we find paths where we can both increase the sustainability of, of the way our societies work, but also ensure that all our societies give everybody an equal opportunity to you know, live a fulfilling life? You know, in, in some ways, this is quite a cliche story. Middle class kid from a developed country goes to a developing country for the first time and, and has this kind of epiphany. I I know probably 30 people myself who have the same story. But I think the interesting thing about cliches is they're often true, right? That's why they become cliches. That that first experience of of exposure to extreme poverty is extremely affecting. So, you know, having that ambition, I was then looking for how to enact it. How do I fulfill this ambition to be involved in development and sustainable development? And initially, I pursued work in the UN and and similar throughout my undergraduate degree. I think I rapidly came to the conclusion that that those institutions are are vital, but are not where my personality type was going to (laughs) thrive. You know, I'm very interested in getting to an outcome, moving quickly, and multilateral organizations and development organizations are, are very focused on getting things right, making sure that the politics are right. And it's a longer process. So I I came to the conclusion that I wanted to be involved in sustainable development, but that the private sector was probably going to be the tool that I used to do that. And so I went to work at the Boston Consulting Group for a few years and and did my kind of private sector apprenticeship. And from there, I I went to work with the indigenous communities at, at a think tank called the Cape York 
Institute, working with Indigenous communities trying to reshape the economic circumstances in uh, far north Queensland in Australia. And from there to Afghanistan, where I worked as a consultant to the British government, trying to also shape the private sector policies in Afghanistan in a way that would allow growth. And so, you know, I think this is a timely week to be having this conversation. You know, Afghanistan has really tragically fallen apart over the last couple of weeks. And that's kind of linked to the the origin story of cross-boundary, which is I came out of those experiences having worked in the private sector and then gone into what you would call the development sector. And in particular, having gone into the intervention that was Afghanistan, which was, you know, I, I think probably a just war. And then a huge collection. They basically, no one in, in, in the world really disagreed with overthrowing the Taliban regime in 2001, 2002. And the entire force of the most powerful militaries in the world, the most powerful governments in the world, everyone set their mind to how do we turn Afghanistan into Denmark? <laughs> and I think what I learned when I was living in Kabul was that that was such a flawed approach. I think I experienced really viscerally that you can't change a country from the top down and the outside in. Change, real positive change, requires a lot of humility. It requires putting people who actually understand what the, the place that you're operating in at the center of everything. And our efforts in Afghanistan lacked that. They lacked context. They lacked humility. And therefore, you know, tragically, now after 20 years, we failed. And so I turned up uh, at graduate school in America, still with a desire to kind of live a life of service in some way, but with a kind of maximum disillusionment mode. <laughs> I'd seen what it looks like to kind of try and change a country from the top down with limitless resources, relatively limitless resources relative to the size of, of the country we were operating in. And I'd seen how badly that approach already seemed to be failing. Um, and I met Jake Cusack, who was my co-founder of Cross Boundary, and he had um, been in the U.S. Marines, and I think he'd drawn some of the same lessons. He'd been deployed in Iraq, and he and I both felt that there was more room for interventions that, that weren't military and that weren't sort of traditional aid. And primarily, we were extremely interested in how can we use the private sector as a tool for development. And, and, and originally, Cross Boundary began completely focused on fragile and, and conflict-affected states. How can we better use the private sector as a complementary tool to security and development interventions, but as an additional tool? This has become way more mainstream in, in development thinking, but at the time, it was more unusual back in like 2009. So... We were very interested in that idea. I think we were drawn to the private sector because the private sector is essentially, it has to be contextual. You're disciplined by the market and your customers. So for instance, now like we are selling solar electricity to you know, people in rural communities across Africa. If we can't give them a product that is sufficiently reliable and sufficiently affordable, sufficiently usable, that they want to use it, then we don't have a business and we'll, we'll run out of money and we'll die. <laughs> and that's good. <laughs> 
Whereas, you know, if we were, say, we had been given the money to go and do the same thing, ultimately our incentives would be set by the people who've given us the money, not by our customer. And so, you know, there are a lot of nuances here. Like we certainly don't have a view that aid is bad or that private charity is, is bad. These things are, are great, they're necessary, they're just not sufficient. Real positive and sustainable change, real positive and sustainable development comes from the people who are in those countries themselves taking ownership over the challenges and being treated as customers, not as recipients. And so that was where Cross Boundary came from, was kind of, we're at maximum disillusionment, we're looking for new tools, and we said, okay, well, let's start, let's have a business here that is focused on how can you bring private capital and private enterprise to create sustainable growth in developing countries. Thank you, Matt. You mentioned many interesting points, but I'd like to zoom in on two words that you specifically used, context and humility. Now, cross-boundary is operated in many different contexts and many different jurisdictions, and it can be quite difficult to build a team uh, to tackle so many different markets. But when I looked at cross-boundary's website, I was very impressed because I could see graduates from local universities, but I could also see folks from the diaspora that worked at top financial institutions and graduate from elite universities. So how have you been able to build this team to operate at the necessary scale? I think it's one of the things that I'm most proud of and I, I like most about CrossBoundary is uh, the story that I just told you now is essentially an outsider's narrative. <laughs> you know, it's a story about someone coming and trying to be helpful in some way. Whereas, like, actually what's really exciting about CrossBoundary now is that it's no longer a, a company of people from outside the places that we're trying to be helpful in. It, now the vast majority of our team is actually drawn from the markets that we're trying to be impactful in. And over time, I think like that's only going to increase. And as, as our team grows and matures, like the, the leadership of the whole firm will reflect the places that we work in. And I, I think that's really exciting. And but how did we how did we get there? I think we were quite lucky, we, like in a sense. It wasn't, certainly wasn't accidental. It's been a very deliberate process. But I think the core insight that led us to forming this like very super diverse, super dynamic team was that we very early on hired people who didn't look like Jake and I. <laughs> and those people thrived at Cross Boundary and then they attracted their peer groups, which look different than our networks. And I think that's like the core insight is you know, make the effort early to hire what you want your team to look like in the end, because the, the first 20 people, in a way, the next 100 people come from the network of the first 20 people. <laughs> so if you've gone out and you've hired the first 20 people and everybody is the same, then you've, you've missed a huge opportunity to kind of create a seed of diversity that, that grows into the, the diverse team that you want. So you mentioned the interesting term, outsider's narrative, and going through some of your interesting publications, and you've had some interesting publications regarding investment facilitation and 
blended finance. And you had one a research document with the International Finance Corporation where fragile and conflict states account for just 1% of global FDI. Now, what I would find very interesting would be how do you interact with these development financial institutions to stop looking from the outsider's narrative and try to look from the, the insider's perspective and find the relevant opportunities to make sure that they develop the country sustainably. Yeah, and, and this kind of goes back to the story of cross-boundaries. You know, the story I've told you is like where cross-boundary came from, but like what does cross-boundary actually do? <laughs> we do a few different things within that broader mission. I always think that the why of cross-boundary is super clear, which is we want to unlock private capital to make you know, a strong return and a lasting difference to sustainable growth. And the how is also very clear. Small teams, very smart and driven people working on very hard problems. But the what, we have a number of different what's. <laughs> and the, the way we began is still the largest section of our business is, is in transaction advisory. So advising investors on how to in, invest in emerging, developing fragile, conflict-affected markets and advising entrepreneurs on the other side how to raise the money from those investors. So the, the concepts of investment facilitation and our work around trying to attract investment into fragile and conflict-affected states all sits within cross-boundary advisory. And, you know, I think we would say that there's a lack of, of capital flows into fragile and conflict-affected countries for, for a few reasons. One is that there often isn't effective transaction advisory services on the ground and effectively investment facilitation and the paper you mentioned is an approach where donors subsidize or provide success fees for transactions so that transaction advisors are able to go into a market and help transactions happen before they might otherwise do. I mean, the other constraint on fragile investment to fragile conflict to make effective markets is I think our initial thesis was, well, there are huge returns there and the risks are overrated. And I think that is true still, but it's a much more heterogeneous picture than I think we had in mind when we began. I think also there are a lot of industries in fragile markets that have a reasonably capped level of return. You can only sell milk or buses or transport or, or electricity for so much money. You can't just charge five times as much because it happens to be in a difficult place. Well, in that case, like the market shrinks and it doesn't make sense. So I think part of it is that you need investment facilitation. You need advisors in the markets helping bring capital in. But you also do need blended finance in the long run, which is to say you, know, you need DFI investors and, and capital that understands that there are a lot of things that need investment in a conflict-affected state that don't justify themselves on a risk-return basis. So you mentioned uh, your very successful cross-boundary advisory segment. I read on the website has more than 700 million in closed transactions, which is quite impressive. But you also had cross-boundary energy investment fund one. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been engaged in commercial and industrial projects just solar service or solar purchasing power agreements with major brands operating in Africa like Coca-Cola, Unilever, and even Rio Tinto. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, so we were doing the advisory work. We had offices in, in Kabul and South Sudan, and we were sort of moving into Nairobi as well. We, you know, that was going really well. We felt like we were building a, a good business, but also like doing good, meaningful work that was, was having a really positive impact. 
I think we were always interested in you know, what else could we do beyond advisory that would draw on our same skill sets. What were the opportunities to deploy capital or create operating companies that would also fulfill our vision of you know, help private enterprise make a, an impact in, in, in developing countries, but was a different business model. So, and cross-boundary energy was, was the first such platform that we launched. So we saw that the cost of solar was dropping at around 15% a year. Cost of batteries was also beginning to decline at a similar rate, but a lot further away from economic viability. And we realized that on the numbers, a lot of businesses in a lot of markets in Africa could save money if they switched to solar. So the question is, why are they not switching? Our thesis was there's two good reasons why businesses weren't switching. The first is that if you're a medium-sized business and you want to save money using solar, you have to get a million dollars and you put that million dollars down and you buy a bunch of panels and you install it on your roof and then you know you might save a hundred thousand dollars a year or hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year so it takes quite a long time for you to get your money back in the markets that we're working in a lot of businesses actually have a lot of opportunities to, to make better returns than a seven-year payback period so that was the first reason which like companies either didn't have the money or they had better things to spend their money on from a financial perspective than own generation renewables. The second thing is, you know, do you want to run your own power plant? <laughs> like if you're in the business of making Coca-Cola, do you also want to be in the business of running your own electricity? So those two barriers, there, there was a business model innovation that had already occurred in the US, which was essentially signing PPAs with businesses. So we come in, cross-boundary energy comes in, we sign a long-term agreement with the business for them to buy electricity from us. Then we put the solar panels on their roof, maybe a battery in their factory, and we sell them electricity from the facility uh, over time. So it's great for the business because they get cheaper electricity from the very beginning, no need to wait to start saving money. And then secondarily, like they don't have to get involved in figuring out how to build and operate this solar power plant. Instead, we give them guarantees about the level of production and the electricity, and, and we manage all of the technical risk, and, and all of that risk sits with us. So that was cross-boundary energy. It was, was slower than we expected to get started. But the, the good thing is, is like, and this would be advice I would give somebody you know, graduating um, from, from business school or something today would be you know, find industries where the tide is coming in. <laughs> and in renewables, the tide is coming in. The, the direction of the world is, is going in this direction. Our product is 60 to 70% cheaper than it was five years ago, and it continues to decline in cost. And the same with storage, which will be a huge value add. So we're in a market where every day what we can offer customers gets better and better. We're now in a position where we, we have around $100 million of projects in construction and operation or that have been awarded to us. And there's a huge market opportunity across the continent to deliver cleaner power to these businesses, more reliable power to these businesses. And also the impact case is just huge. When the World Bank does its sort of does a biannual survey where it, it asks businesses, what's the biggest obstacle to you growing? Growing, employing more people, creating more wealth, and businesses say the, the two overwhelming answers are 
access to electricity and access to finance. And we're doing both. We're providing finance to electricity. <laughs> so it's a very exciting business that both has immense economic value to be created and then also, I think, immense impact. As an African, I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, especially some of the figures that I found on your website. You mentioned a lot about your cross-boundary energy, but now we seem to have a new segment where it's cross-boundary energy access. There's some interesting statistics like 618 million Africans don't have power, and 200 million of them would be best served either by, for example, a grid extension, 300 million by solar home systems, and 100 million by mini grids, and 100 million could expand to 264 by 2030. Now, the main issue with main grids in, in Africa, according to your research, is that uh, 96% of close to 500 million Africans that receive power from the main grid, those grids that they're receiving from 80% of them are making losses. For example, the Kenyan grid, if I'm not mistaken, the payback period is like 44 years, especially if they're doing rural connection. So I'm really interested to hear more about the mini grid pooling facilities system that you're working on. And also talking about how things are moving slowly, but hopefully surely, how do you manage your expectations with the timelines, especially since the development may take one to five years and construction may take a, a few more months and, and so on? The cross-boundary energy access is sort of the next part of the story in a way, which is that we were sitting in this business selling solar electricity to other businesses and we saw that the same technology trends, the same technology tide that I'm talking about could also be used for something even more impactful. If solar and storage and the ability to communicate with that technology using mobile phones and the Internet of Things, all of those things could also be used to bring electricity. They can, we can use them to bring electricity to Unilever and Coca-Cola and Rio Tinto, and we are. <laughs> but I think there's a really compelling opportunity also in Africa where over 600 million people don't have access to electricity and these same technologies as they decrease in cost more and more of those people could be most cost effectively served by a solar storage mini grid and that mini grid could be integrated with the the broader grid when the time comes but in the meantime if you look at the cheapest way to connect roughly 300 million of that 600 million it's through remote solar storage mini grid and so we became really interested in this you know we had friends who who were doing incredible work companies like powergen who were doing incredible work building these mini grids and the feedback they gave us was you know we're, we're making good progress here the costs are coming down we're going to be creating something that could be really impactful but it's very difficult to raise finance for these assets in the way that they need to be financed. These mini grids, the, the money that was flowing into the sector is very oriented around venture capital, essentially. So let's build a utility of the future. But the problem with the utility of the future is it's still a utility. <laughs> if you raise $20 million of capital, most of what you're going to have to do is put it in utility scale assets that are generating 8, 9, 10% returns. So we saw an opportunity for CrossBoundary to be helpful there, which was to go out and raise a fund that would specifically provide asset financing to these mini good developers. So we raised that fund, it's called CrossBoundary Energy Access. And what it does is it partners with developers. We just recently announced a deal with PowerGen in, in Nigeria 
and we bring the asset financing to to build and, and own the mini grids and take their return from that. And then the developer retains the operating contract over those assets and also a big share of any profits created by those assets over time. So it's great for infrastructure investors because then they can just invest in the thing they want to invest in, which is infrastructure. It's great for investors in the developers because they can invest in the thing that they want to invest in, which is a high growth company with smaller capital requirements. And it's great for developers because it gives them a much lighter business model where they can focus on doing what they want to do really well, which is build and operate a utility in the future. Thank you, Matt. I would like to turn to one of your documents regarding project financing of uh, mini grids. For many people who work in the finance sector, especially in uh, high-end sectors like investment banking and so on, project financing is definitely not the sexiest thing to do or to get into. But I, I looked through your paper and there was a very interesting approach. And you use these three terms, isolate, allocate, and aggregate. It can be quite cumbersome, especially when you have all these small mini-grid assets. How do you aggregate them together and uh, make it investable for larger institutions? And also, do you interact with local financial institutions in doing so? I think the paper you're referring to is our open source document. And I think this was an interesting choice that we made, which was to say we're a pioneer of this idea of turning mini-grid assets into infrastructure. But there's hundreds of millions of people who need access to electricity who would be best served by mini grids so you know we could kind of keep all our insights and ip to ourselves or we could share it more widely and publicly and therefore help the whole sector grow so we stole from the software universe and we said well let's open source it's our project financing approach and those words you said isolate allocate and aggregate is like a good high level summary of the approach which is to say how do you take a distributed set of mini grids and then turn them into an infrastructure asset first you have to isolate the mini grid assets from the the developer and utility you need to allocate all of the risks appropriately between the operator of the grids and then the underlying owner of the grids. And then you need to take all those grids and, and put them all together in a pool so that you get to a transaction size that's attractive enough for international and for local financiers. And on that point of international and local, I think the mini grid space, it's still very much an impact oriented space. And the way we've been able to do what we've been able to do so far is because we were lucky enough to receive blended finance support from the Rockefeller Foundation, who've, who've taken an extremely you know, visionary view on the way that distributed renewables are going to help energy access. And so the team there provided us with a blended finance contribution to our first fund, which allowed us to come in at lower returns than a classic infrastructure investor would require. What's interesting, though, is like the same thing that we saw in commercial industrial solar is happening in mini grids, which is you know, there is a steady decline in cost. And there's a lot of good work going into how we can increase the revenues as well by creating incomes for customers. And so the business model continues to improve and it will eventually get to a level that's attractive to you know, local pension funds. And then it will be an extremely impactful infrastructure play and would be really attractive for African pension funds. Uh, you mentioned the word open source and I was looking through your website. You also have cross-boundary lab. Cross-boundary lab seems to be doing uh, testing of different prototypes for uh, mini-grid developers across several countries. 
and you publish your results for free, and you have 24 developers uh, testing their innovations and generating 1 million data points uh, per day. And you also use uh, geospatial data, which is quite important in Africa, considering the, the sheer size of the continent. But also the, the research from uh, Cross Boundary Lab is quite interesting. For example, how mini grids can industrialize rural areas, or even the concept of appliance financing is not always a supply issue, but it's also a demand issue with regards to what the customers are going to be using power for. And you also had some interesting research about the difficulties of conducting survey research. And I think that's one of the end goals of Cross Boundary Lab is to make it easier to conduct that survey research with all the data that we collect. The purpose of the lab is to kind of attack that problem that I was talking about, which is that at the moment, mini-grids do require subsidy and blended finance to be economically viable. Uh, so the Mini-Grid Innovation Lab is, is an approach. You know, when I was at Stanford, I had the opportunity to take classes at the, the design school there. And there's sort of this whole approach around rapid prototyping, quickly testing ideas, you know, not in a full, you know, randomized controlled trial way, but like in a, a, a more rapid and results-oriented approach, I think. And so the idea is that it's an interesting model of innovation where we have funding to use to test ideas that would improve the mini-grid business model. Developers can opt in to receiving that funding to test ideas. So I have an idea that this appliance might be really helpful for customers and allow them to increase their incomes, but also at the same time buy more electricity. Well, the Mini-Grid Innovation Lab can finance a, a test of that, a prototype of that, but in exchange, you have to share your results with everybody else. <laughs> and so it's kind of like a private-public hybrid innovation model that I think is really interesting. So I, I've seen that you published uh, recently a research with uh, Tony Blair Institute uh, regarding scaling up investments for COVID-19 economic recovery and jobs in Africa. What are your thoughts right now regarding the economic recovery in uh, fragile and conflict states and in countries in Africa? And how can the government enact better policies so that these investments that are needed can be catalyzed? Yeah, I, mean, I think COVID has had a different effect in, in my experience in Africa than you know, in, in Europe or Australia or, or America, just because you can't shut the economy down in countries where so many people live so close to the edge. And so uh, Africa's kind of had to try and navigate a middle path. So I think in some ways that's been good because the economic damage has been, I think, more constrained, but it's still very real. It's also you know, less damage, but you're in a you know, more fragile place to begin with. You still end up in a bad place. The other problem is that African governments don't generally have the capability to step in and kind of in a Keynesian way try and stimulate the economy in the same way that the U.S. government does. So there's a huge need for continued donor support and an emphasis to make sure that, that this is a bump in the road and, and not a sort of a spiral into disaster. I think also, though, I, the, the, probably the most important thing that is required from the outside is, is vaccine equality. One interesting thing in Kenya is that it's done a very efficient and good job of distributing the vaccines they have, but they just don't have enough. And, you know, it will be a real failure of our global community if we don't find a way to ensure that anyone who wants to get vaccinated in Kenya can get vaccinated, but someone who wants to get vaccinated in 
Oklahoma three times can get vaccinated. <laughs> so I think get, getting everybody protected is you know, vital for unlocking the long-term recovery from COVID and hopefully Western governments who have the capability to do that really comes through on that. Uh, throughout this whole interview, uh, you remind me of two books that I read during my undergraduate studies. One was Dead Aid by uh, Dambi Samoyo, and the second one was For Economics by Abhijit uh, Banerjee and Esther Duflo. If you were to look back uh, in your days when you were a student or when you uh, were thinking of starting cross-boundary and uh, attracting LPs and uh, DFIs, uh, what career advice or personal life advice that would you give them? Well, first, I feel very lucky and grateful to have found purpose and be having some success in trying to fulfill it. <laughs> if you can find that in your work, you know, everything in life becomes pretty easy because family is amazing, friends are great. <laughs> um, the hard thing to get right is finding work that is inspiring. I'm very happy to walk into the office every day. I think I feel very lucky to have found that and to have found purpose, but then also an opportunity to have a meaningful impact on that purpose. So it's always hard for me because I think it does require quite a lot of luck. <laughs> so it's hard for me to like boil it down to like, this is what you need to do. <laughs> but I think some things are, that can help people on that path. You know, the first is to be patient and try different things. So I was a legal intern. I worked as a, a policy advisor. I worked in the think tank. I worked at BCG. Like I, I worked in a lot of different functions before finding the thing I wanted to put my shoulder to. So there's some degree of like, don't rush it. You don't need to be Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> or Bill Gates who starts the company when you're 25. There's plenty of time. And then the second is like, that said, read widely and deeply, think carefully, pay attention to where you find like joy in your work and navigate towards what you want your purpose to be. If I got one thing right, I knew I wanted to be involved in sustainable development. I knew I wanted to be involved in doing that in places where it would have the most impact. And I steadily kind of tacked the boat of my career towards that over time and eventually got into a place where I could let the spinnaker and the boat out <laughs> and really go for it. So I think some patience and like allowing yourself to experiment and you don't have to you know, figure it all out before you turn 30, but also a sense of deliberate and intentional work to identify your purpose and, and go after it. I think those things uh, will stand you in good stead. Thank you very much, Matt, for all the valuable advice and this very, very interesting conversation. I wish you and your colleagues all the best at CrossBoundary. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.